I have been searching. Welcome to Following the Fire. Thanks for joining us on this journey through the wilderness. Just like Israel followed the pillar of fire and smoke, we want to take a new look at our beliefs and just follow him. And like Israel, we get it wrong a lot, we get lost a lot, but we're doing our best to, to go where God leads us. I'm Nathan. And I'm Steve. Don't you know it's all I have? But even on my heart. All right, uh, welcome to Following the Fire. Today we ha- have a special guest. We have Steve Martin on. Uh, not that Steve Martin, not this Steve Martin, but another Steve Martin. I <laughs> uh, never thought, I, I got this weird message of, a while back on Facebook this, from a guy named Stephen D. Martin, which is exactly my name. And uh, I thought it was a spam. <laughs> Some, somebody faking my account. But it's not. So, uh, welcome, Steve. Glad to glad to have you on here. Yeah, it, it was it was a strange and funny kind of story on my uh, on my end too. I was uh, we apparently are, are part of a same, the uh, the same uh, Facebook group, um, and uh, and I saw that somebody had posted. You know, somebody named Steve Martin had posted, and I and you know how you're just kind of glancing through things, and I saw my name, and I and I. And I saw the post. I was like, I don't remember posting that. <laughs> and, then, and then I tracked it all down. Oh, wait, there's another guy. Oh, and he does, he does podcasts. And oh, he he's talking about faith. And oh my gosh. So uh, you're my new best friend, as I like to tell people. <laughs> yeah, it blew, it blew my mind because, like I said, not only is it Stephen D. Martin, but uh, spelled with a V like mine, and you're a... Uh, pastor um yep. and you've you, you're uh, passionate about social justice and like all it's like they just kept connecting the dots so we figured we had to have you on our podcast so just but you're the lucky one because your middle name is is dean and mine is yeah. Dwayne. <laughs> and we both have we both have reasons why we couldn't just shift towards our middle name right yours was yeah. because it would just set you up with the same problem mine is because i Absolutely hate my middle name. So there you go. <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. So we're happy to have you on the podcast. And uh, so what we wanted to do is um, we, we like to have folks on once in a while to kind of talk about their faith stories a bit and um, kind of where they started, where they're, where they are now and how they got there. Yeah. So, and yeah. then, so take it away and we'll ask questions along the way. Well, I'm an I'm an old guy, so uh, I have a lot of stories to tell. And uh, as a pastor, I know how to talk about uh, my faith story. And what I think always happens is we kind of generate this narrative about the way things work. And when we're asked, we just kind of go right into it, you know, and and don't really think about it too much. We just recite it the way we've always done so. And and I could do that now. But I'm going to try to um, be a little bit more real. Um, not that my narrative is not real. It's just I want to try to to make it a little bit more fresh than than uh, than just kind of reciting the sure. same old talking points, you know. But um, I, you know, I, I I think one of the things I'm really interested in with what you guys are doing and what a lot of people are doing right now is is we're just asking some real serious questions. We grew up with one type of faith and we found that it didn't fit and it's scary. It's really, really scary to move out into the, 
into the wilderness. And I love that metaphor that you guys have used. And um, uh, it's just, it's scary and it's, it's dangerous and it's treacherous and all of that kind of stuff. I grew up in East Tennessee in a very, it's a small town. It's a medium sized town for Tennessee, right outside of Knoxville. Um, and it's a town where our, our main industry is uh, manufacturing really, really powerful nuclear weapons. Um, and, <laughs> really? Yeah, right? So, um, but it's a, it was a fascinating place to grow up because um, it was full of scientists and full of uh, physicists and, and uh, really, really smart people. There was, I think, a time when I was a kid where it was known as the city where there were uh, more PhDs per capita than anywhere else in the country. I think that shifted Whoa. over to Cary, North Carolina um, at some point. But uh, still, it was, a, it was a really great place to grow up because it, was, it had all the kind of the you know, bucolic um, um, vibe of a, of a rural Tennessee town, but we also had a, uh, a community symphony orchestra. We also had a community ballet. We also had a community art, several, a couple of community art centers. And there was always this very rich kind of life. But the, the way you, you can't, even with that, you can't take um, Tennessee out of the picture. Mm-hmm. And you can't take the Bible Belt out of the picture. And so when I um, really... I was I was raised a United Methodist. I was one of those kids that was drag kicking and screaming to church, uh, you know, every couple of weeks when my mom had the strength to to deal with me. Um, and then and then in sixth grade, I was confirmed. I really enjoyed my confirmation class and really experienced a lot. And then you know, this is where the kind of the faith story talking points really come out. Is that uh, when I became a when I was a junior in high school, I was getting in a lot of trouble. And I was hanging out with the wrong crowd. And one night I, or one day I saw, um, I was reading the newspaper. I always like to read the police report. And I read about something that I had done the Friday night before. And, uh, you know, petty crime, uh, little vandalism with a BB gun, but it absolutely sent me through the floor. And really? uh, I went about saying, well, okay, I don't think I'm on the really the best path here. And uh, it was right at that time when the when my youth director kind of appeared in my life, and um, and uh, I you know complete change, and uh, I'm one of those United Methodists who can really talk about a born ex- born again experience, um, really becoming powerfully converted in the fall of my senior year of high school, and and receiving a call to ministry right after that. Um, real real life changing stuff. Um, when I got into college, you know, uh, I was trying to sort it all out, sort of figure it all out. And the people that I, uh, found in my life that could talk about, uh, faith and, and really, you know, were spiritual people were mostly Southern Baptists. And Hmm. so I really, really incorporated kind of a Southern Baptist slash Pentecostal point of view into my, my life, which, uh, then I went to seminary, and man, it all just got shredded in seminary. So you know, you think seminary is supposed to be the place where, um, where you um, you kind of get built up, but for me, it was it was a it was a taking apart, um, it was a tearing down, and and it took me seven years uh, of being in churches and being a pastor in churches before I really started putting that back together. Mm. Um, it's really um, 
it's hard it's hard to describe why that is the approach of a lot of seminaries I don't think it's intentional to to you know nobody's trying to tear you down but there is a deconstruction that has to happen for you to come through with a faith that is really yours and not just the mm-hmm. voice of the preacher that you grew up hearing uh, echoing in the back of your head. And I really appreciate that, but that was hard work. That was really difficult to do. Would you say that's pretty common amongst folks that go through seminary? It just depends on the seminary, I think. Um, okay. uh, there, there are a lot of schools which will just, I, I just call them preacher college, and they'll, they'll reinforce uh, the, the denominational line uh, of what you are uh, supposed to talk about as a, as a pastor in a certain denomination. And then there are others that uh, um, really see their role as giving you a classical education in which they're not really trying to produce any kind of outcome or you know political or spiritual or theological outcome, but just to give you all the pieces of it and to challenge you um, on the things you, you bring into that experience. Hmm. So yeah. if you're if you're liberal, they'll 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 challenge your liberal stuff. If they if you're conservative, they'll challenge your your conservative stuff. But it's all about kind of you know taking apart so that you have and giving you the tools you need to build it back up and to to mm. find it again. It just took me a really long time. Mm. Um but again, you know, I look back on I I've got a lot of things in my life that I would love to I I always play that game of gosh, if I only had done this, if I had only thought, if I only knew then what I knew now, know now. Um I could do that with this, but I in all of those instances I am so freaking happy that I went through the things that I went through because I really like where I am now. And, and I think that, um, I think that, and I think, you know, self-deception is always a a problem, but I really do think that I'm walking with Christ more closely today than I ever have been Hmm. and more, uh, more attuned to God's call in my life. And, and if, and if it took all that stuff years ago, so be it, you know, um, that's kind of the way I see it. So I'm a little bit curious what for you in seminary was the thing that needed to be torn down or that you were brought in with just as part of your experience that got challenged or, or kind of, uh, exposed in seminary. I think the big thing was just having easy answers and just trying to, you know, and, and just, again seeing my role as a as a faith person a faith leader as being somebody who just isn't the, the bible answer man um and i think that was that was taken down but i think more than that um i there was a friend of mine that was really key in my development and that's a a bit of a tortured story as well but um he was he was a you know kind of a new york times reading liberal Christian guy um, that really rubbed me the wrong way, but mm. we were good friends, right? We disagreed yeah. on just about everything, but countless times we'd go fishing or we'd go out to lunch, you know, or uh, whatever. We would get in these, we'd get locked in these big, big conversations and these big debates about things. And I would basically say, you know, I'd say something based upon, 
my understandings to that point. And he'd always come back and say, but Steve, what did Jesus say about that? And that was the, that was the kicker, right? Because there was all this, you know, convoluted theology that was always kind of surrounding me and coming out of me. But, you know, he just constantly challenged me, what, did, what, did, what about Jesus? What did he say about that? And and for me that was that was my first love when I when I uh, when I became a Christian I my youth director told me read the Bible but don't start at Genesis and read forward you'll get bored when all you have to run into all the genealogies um, start at the Gospels and deal with the yeah. you know the the genealogies are short there so <laughs> start with the Gospels and I just remember one night just being so absolutely lit up after I read the Sermon on the Mount. And I just, I couldn't get those things out of my head. I went out for a walk and, and just, it was so revolutionary. And I heard things, you know, I heard expressions in the, in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, like turn the other cheek, you know, that I'd heard before, but I didn't know where they came from. And, and it just, it exploded in my mind and my heart with this alternative view of the way things are. Um, a better view, a, a, you know, God's point of view. And, and when he touched upon that, that's when I had to go really in deep, you know, along with the other voices I was hearing in seminary. And I had to really question, okay, you know, are you, are you doing what you set out to do and what you were called to do, AKA, are you following Jesus or are you not? And that was really the piece that has stuck with me all the way through. And it there's there's other iterations of how I've had to deal with that. I, I had to deal with that when I left the pastorate, uh, when I left the, the, the parish ministry side of, of my work, um, because uh, I, think, I think as long as I was a pastor in a church, I felt responsible for kind of you know, putting forth the company uh, point of view, you know, classical theology, uh, substitutionary atonement, all those things, you know. And when I was released from that and and was able to pursue the work that I'm doing now, basically, that's when I had felt the freedom to, to, again, go back to Jesus, go back to the experience, find out, figure out what is the core of it all. And uh, for me, it's his teachings. It's, it's, even distilled down to the thing that I think you have to view all of it through, which is, you know, if Jesus was, if Jesus was asked, it would be really cool if Jesus was asked, um, what's the most important thing you should know? Because it'd be really cool if he had an answer for that. Um, and then we would solve, it would solve all of our problems, right? If we just knew what the most important thing was, well, you know what? He did do that. Somebody did ask him that. And they ask him that several times, and he get he answered it the same way every time. Do you know what he said? I bet you do. Something, something. Love people and God. Huh? Not <laughs> yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yep. It's so frustrating that you you just said it that way because I have this um, desire, this kind of this fantasy, like man, if 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 Jesus could just barge into my house. And just tell me what I need to do, you know, or just tell me the answers or just say like, this is it. Or even I know it would be like, these are your blind spots. You know, I'm like, that's what I need. And and you're like, yeah, if only, if only he had said that. And if only, I don't know, someone wrote it down. 
And, you know, if only you had a copy of that, you know, right behind you, you know. You know, and it's funny, um, with all that kind of obvious stuff that he said right in our face, (laughs) we still go to church and we don't hear that. Why? We hear all this other stuff, you know. We hear all this other convoluted theology about all kinds of things that Jesus never talked about. Yeah. But we ignore the very stuff that he did, and I have a theory that that goes all the way back to the beginning because um, I don't. You, you're you're not part of any or creedal church, right? Do you do you say right. creeds? No. Yeah. No. It in in my denomination, we we um, we learn from you know at the time we're kids, we learn to say the Apostles' Creed. Right. And the Apostles' Creed, you know, is this nice little thing about I believe in this and I believe in that, and it's a statement of faith about what what you believe as a Christian. It's cool. The fascinating thing, it took me until maybe 10 years ago that a pastor friend of mine in a sermon pointed out that the Apostles' Creed and I believe the Nicene Creed and all the other historical creeds absolutely skip over the life of Jesus completely. Think about it. Wow. Think about it. It says, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was hmm. crucified, dead, and buried. What about all that stuff he said? What about all the stuff he taught? What about his parables? What about his miracles? What about all that stuff? It's not there. And so, you know, this kind of post-Roman Christianity that we're all really a part of in one way or another, it is, it is I, I'm going to overstate things because that's just kind of what I do, but I would say it's unconcerned with the historical Jesus, with the person Jesus, the things that he taught, and it is only concerned with um, atonement theories and, um, and, and heaven and hell I would say as a way of, of a society or a social system trying to control our behavior, right? To get us to yeah. conform to a certain, because we believe that doing some, you know, certain things is going to send us to hell. We're maybe not going to do those things. But um, when we, when we uh, invest ourselves in a Jesus who, oh, by the way, was a radical, was a revolutionary mm-hmm in a very different kind of sense than a revolutionary is usually thought of, but still a revolutionary, someone who is very, very strongly and powerfully anti-empire, anti-Rome, um, and cast a completely different vision than all of the kingdoms of the earth cast. It's kind of not surprising when you think about all that, that Rome might not have wanted to tell that story really loudly and broadly as it, put Christianity into its system and, and so on. So enough of my, enough of my yakking, you <laughs> know, this is, these are the things I, that I'm as you can tell, I'm quite passionate about. <laughs> That's fascinating. The, you know, the night I like the Nicene Creed. Um, it's novel for me. Right. And uh, it's very much though, something that I had already struggled with, which is I already know that I'm supposed to believe the correct things. Yeah. But there's, you know, it's pretty light on the application. It's, there's not very much like, so now here's, here's what we are. Here's what the church is. Here's what our role is or what our actions are. Because the nation state is really threatened by a group of people that if we were told, here's how you were to act according to these things, 
this, the nation state would really be kind of challenged by that, I think. Yeah, we early on in the early episodes of our podcast, Nathan and I talked about our desire to know God and have a relationship versus know about God. And it's kind of it kind of along those lines because I never really thought about how how much of those creeds and and it, the the things the way things are set up in churches in general there's so much emphasis on the knowledge and especially in the west knowledge and and believing the right things here and there and um it's like assumed that if you know all the stuff you'll apply it the right way but it's, it's clearly not that way well yeah and i remember going to a um uh to a church in my community, taking our, our church, our kids are leading a confirmation class um, and taking them to another church who is describing their confirmation process. And again, if you're not part of a church that does this confirmation is kind of that bar mitzvah experience in, a, mm-hmm. in, in the Christian faith. It's a, it's a point at which, you know, uh, in some traditions we kind of acknowledge that, okay, it's time for me to take on the, the yoke of faith myself rather than, you know, what my parents are kind of choosing for me. And we went to the to um, to the church, this other church, and he was describing how you know this is where our Christian education program is. It's like we go, to, we, this is how we uh, clean out the offering plates, and this is what you do when you change the pyramids, the the cloths on the altar, and this is what you do when you bring the the uh, the light forward in the worship service to light the candles. And I'm like, right. that's Christian education. <laughs> that's that's teaching people how to be part of a a club where you have a secret handshake that's not that's not teaching people about how to challenge the evil powers of the world right yeah yeah like growing up like well before i left the church i was at i was in charge of adult education and that was the term we use adult education and children's education and there's a United Church of Christ, we've been visiting a little bit recently, and they, they don't have adult and children education. They have spiritual formation. I thought, I like that term. Sure. <laughs> it's a great term. Like, let's help you form spiritually and, and um, do, do something with it instead of just knowing stuff. But I, um, I, you know, I think one of the biggest changes to me and is, is, um, is, is the phase, I think, where I had to start really learning that it, in order to walk with Jesus, I needed to start putting my money where my mouth was. Mm. And it wasn't about believing the right things. It wasn't about um, being able to say the right things. It was, uh, and it wasn't about really just being kind of a nice person. It was about, um, it was about speaking up and, and being, uh, putting my body in the way. I know that's kind of a, buzzword in in again in liberal circles these days but but if you think about it when jesus says you know um there's no greater love than than to lay one lay one's life down for their friends that that's what we're talking about and and that's not just something we do in the military that's when we when we see that people are being oppressed or we see that people are being wronged having to put yourself kind of in that situation and put yourself in a position where you are in the middle of that, that's where kind of the next iteration started to happen for me. And that's, that's really the hard part. Cause I'm not a, I'm not a particularly courageous guy. 
and I don't have these, you know, these feelings wash over me of, oh, cool, you're going to be okay. You're going to be just fine. You're at peace with this terrible situation. I have been scared to death um, trying to be a Christian presence in a situation where real evil was being perpetuated. And that's hard for me, but that's really where I think it, uh, that's where I'm called to go in these years of my life. So, And it sounds like uh, you're talking about protest or even race. Is that what you're referring to? I was, um, I I guess it's maybe a good time to talk about Charlottesville. Um, I, um, yeah, yeah, it, it, I, there was a day that I was, it was in, uh, again, if you don't know, the National Council of Churches is one of the old um, agencies, probably about a hundred years old, really got going in the fifties and sixties and was a really kind of a powerful force in American culture when, you know, the, all the, the mainline churches were really big and, and everybody was uh, going to church on Sunday morning. Um, not as, not as powerful and not as um, effective anymore for sure. But, um, but when I was working there, uh, I, we were getting calls from uh, pastors in Charlottesville saying, hey, you know, so there's been some stuff going down here um, over the last few weeks. It hadn't made the news, but it's getting worse. There's right-wing groups that are, that are uh, um, trying to protest the fact that the city council said take these Confederate statues down, et cetera. And, um, and things are really getting bad and they're getting bad. You know, they're taking, things are happening right in front of our churches, um, where, you know, on Sunday morning and, and we need to do something. And, um, and then, um, I had two guys come in and they, they, the way they describe it is they bum rushed me in my office. I I didn't feel like I was being bum rushed at all. They just, it was a nice polite visit, uh, that I was kind of expecting that day. But, um, but they um, uh, they came in and they and they told me they said, we really need backup on this. We need you know a national call to go out for clergy to come and show up at this uh, at this thing that's going to happen on August twelfth of twenty seventeen, and um, uh, and I you know I was like okay cool I'm the communications guy I'll put the word out I'll I'll put it in our newsletter I'll do some social media posts and everything <laughs> and 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 then it it um, it occurred to me that. Uh, one of my gifts and and secret powers that I have is I'm a photographer and um, I'm a kind of a decent photographer and uh, I'm very passionate about visual storytelling. And I say that, Hey guys, you know, I can come and um, I, I, I can take, you know, I can take pictures and they're like, Oh cool. got to have that money shot. Got to have that great, you know, that great shot that tells a story. And then I was like, "Oh crap! What did I just do? <laughs> what did I just do?" And then, um, and then they, um, it 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 keeps going from there. It's like I I go to back to the staff and say, "Well, you know, we we really need to. I think this is an important thing that some of us need to show up for." And 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 uh, other people in the staff are like, "Well, I got I was supposed to be on vacation that weekend, and I'm going to be in Mexico, and I'm going to be in Cuba, and I'm going to be you know, and everybody was going to be gone." And, and I was like. <laughs> Oh man, this is, this is down to me and I don't want to go, but I told him I would and there's nobody else going to go. So I have to cover this for the staff. And, um, I went and it was absolutely terrifying 
we were told ahead of time that um, that you know the the organizers of this uh, clergy counter protest that formed, we were told that um, that it was quite likely that there would be um, first of all there was the fear of the police was was the the the, um, the organizers felt like the police were going to be the bigger problem um, and mm. than the protesters uh, and that was because of their experience in Ferguson, Missouri. Oh. Um, and that turned out to not be the issue at all. Um, but what they were, they were also saying is that they had seen on websites that the Klan was having, was planning to have uh, snipers on rooftops. Seriously? Um, and that, uh, and that the, uh, the neo-Nazis um, were going to, um, no, it was the Klan was going to open carry, but the neo-Nazis were going to, going to concealed carry. Oh. And um, that that was, that was much more dangerous, I thought, to have people concealed carrying than to have people open carrying. And that it was going to be this, you know, this hotbed environment where somebody was going to get killed. The morning of the, of the protest, we, we gathered in a church for a beautiful, beautiful worship service uh, to get ready. It's like really like seven o'clock in the morning or something. It was really early. And, um, and when it was over, the organizer kicked everybody out that wasn't going to be actually on the ground, you know, in the protest, kicked all, there were some city, uh, city council members or some reporters and said, kicked them all out, closed the doors, very dramatically said, all right, you guys need to understand that if you go out on the streets this morning, you will be arrested. Whoa. You, some of you will be seriously injured and some of you might be killed. Whew. And <laughs> well, you, you're like, I'm just here to take pictures. <laughs> there's no sugarcoating that there's no, yeah. there's no, and, and, and I didn't want to be there, but I knew I was supposed to be there. I knew that the, everything around me had kind of conspired to put me in that place and that I had a unique task and a unique job to do. And, and I did it and hmm. it was terrifying. Um, it was uh, lots of stories to tell from the event, but again, you know, my pictures got published around the world, and um, and I, I'm I'm very proud to have been there as a visual storyteller, uh, telling the story of, you know, that that I don't think the news media picked up on a lot. And the story was for me was that there were there were committed Christians, there were clergy, who were. Um, who are willing to make a statement by putting themselves in, in, in grave danger um, and to do nothing but sing and, yeah. and stand uh, when they were being, you know, shouted at, spat at, uh, insulted, all that stuff. Um, they never, ever responded with um, harsh words or anger or anything. Um, and fortunately our group, you know, emerged from the whole thing without, um, without being injured or killed or anything. Um, we know that's not true for everybody in the, uh, that, that was part of that day, but, um, it was a, wow. it was a very, I'm really proud, uh, that I was there. It was a really formative experience in my faith life, but it, um, it's one that I ask God repeatedly, Please don't send me there again. Please don't send me there again. Please don't send me uh, there again. Yeah, the the narrative that we uh, uh, that I remember hearing from that was, I mean, the, there's like the, the neo Nazi groups and things like that. 
And then the the poor young lady who was killed by the guy who drove through the crowd. Heather Heyer, yeah. Yeah. And and then, of course, we have Trump later talking about the fine people on both sides thing. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize there was this uh, counter protest there from the clergy. That's 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 great. I mean, that's why I went. And um, yeah, I, I, I one of my questions ever since seminary is, OK, there's social action, there's social justice, there's you know, there's there's all that. But what does it mean to be to to have social action in the name of Christ? Mm hmm. And I've always felt like that had a that should have a different character than than any other, you know, because we do we 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 adhere to a story, we adhere to the story of of people, of saints, of 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 a of the Son of God, you know, of and we we have those stories to inform our lives, and they paint a picture of um, of doing things differently. Yeah, and so. Uh, you know, it was always a struggle to me. Okay. Social justice. Yes. Social, you know, I get it. There's, you know, standing on the side of the oppressed. Yes, I get it. Um, but I don't understand what makes a pastor doing those things Christian in and of itself. You know what I'm saying? So, so I've always struggled with what does Christian social action look like? What does it look like for a social justice movement in the name of Jesus? What does that look like? And I think in Charlottesville, it was, um, it was, it was people, um, wearing clergy garb, wearing stoles, wearing collars, wearing albs, robes, things like that, outward signs of their, of their faith. Um, and, and being there and singing this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Um, yeah. While they were, you know, we were standing, there was a row of guys right in front of us that were dressed in military fatigues and had um, um, uh, AR-15s. Ugh. And, um, you know, right in front of us. And turned out to be nice guys. <laughs> you know, again, I can, I can, I can say, and, 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 um, uh, you know, but, but, but in all the chaos and, and craziness of that day, uh, I felt like that was an important, an, a very, very important, um, and very authentic, uh, sign of Christian social witness. It was just people you know, not bearing arms, not bearing, you know, not being violent, not being hateful, not, not responding, uh, with hate to hate, um, and just being there and singing and, and loving. And that really, I think was the, was the beautiful thing that happened that day. Yeah. You mentioned that it was a very important moment for you in your spiritual formation or journey. What would you say, what changed for you or what came more obvious or how did that alter your, your faith journey? Um, well, like I said, it kind of made me pray every day, dear Lord, please don't send me into something like that again. Um, yeah. It, um, it's hard to quantify really. I think about friends that were there um, that I didn't know were going to be there and they just showed up, which was Mm. freaky. Um, And the bond that that created between us. Yeah. Um, And, and we reflect on, you know, we, we, we get together every once in a while or we talk on the phone and we go, Oh yeah. You know, 
that day. And, and that makes an indelible bond between, you know, between all of us that were there, um, that day. Um, but I, but I also, um, I have been very much aware of, uh, since, you know, the mid 2000s, I've been very, very aware of, um, a, uh, a rising in kind of fascist sympathy in the United States and, um, and very fearful about that. But, um, when I was faced with it right in front of me, then, you know, it, 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 it didn't, I don't know that it changed me as much as it was kind of, this is what you've been prepared for, for the last 15 mm-hmm. years. This is what you've been, you, this is the path you've been walking. And I remember there was a, there was an exercise that was when we got back, when we came off the street and we were, uh, chilling at this restaurant that was kind of a safe haven. Uh, Lisa Sharon Harper, who's just a beautiful, beautiful soul, um, was leading us through a meditation exercise. And she, um, she, she said, you know, okay, after the meditation exercise, um, turn to the person next to you and tell them what you heard. If you heard God speak or you heard something, or there was some feeling that came forward. Uh, if you turn to the person that next to you, and share that, if you will. And I turned to the person next to me, and I said, and I did. I heard it. I heard this like three or four times in my life where I've heard an audible voice from God. And what I heard there during that exercise was, well done, good and faithful servant. And I mm. said that to the person next to me, and she gasped, and she said, that's exactly what I heard. Whoa. And and therefore i think you know it was just it was it wasn't something that really propelled me in a new direction but it definitely i think through that 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 prayer uh that word uh that was affirmation that i have been doing what i needed to be doing for the yeah. last you know 15 years of walking in the wilderness and we could talk a lot about that but my journey has been an unsafe one. It has been a, uh, it's not really institutionally acceptable. I don't uh, draw a salary as, as a pastor, you know, and, and I don't have a pension contribution and I don't have all those things that, that we often rely upon in our churches um, as clergy. Um, and, and, you know, life's had its ups and downs. But when I heard that and that was affirmed by the person next to me, it kind of made it all worthwhile, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. It sounds like, you know, to oversimplify your story that you had met a theoretical Jesus that and you went to seminary and you you knew what the right things were to believe and you know, you met someone who was believed the same things about the same person but saw the world differently. But then you you know, you spend 7 years kind of working with that. And then it sounds like probably several more, um, working to a place where now you're, you're very much meeting the practical Jesus in real life situations. And I, something I wonder, because I've spent so much of my time in the theoretical part of it. And I just, you know, get to where I think I believe the right thing. And I rest, you know, because I think I've done, done the thing. And I think about if I went to a protest um, you talked about how, um, 
how what Jesus teaches is threatening to nation states. It's an upside down kingdom, but I th- I just bring my kingdom that I grew up in to to that kind of place, and I think about enemies and winning and losing and defeat, and so when you got to that place and in that kind of apex moment, were you ready for it? And if you were, what got you? to that point where you really were ready to be Jesus and not just, I guess, what a, a secular counter-protest would be, right? There's a, there's a difference. First of all, you're, you're spot on with my evolution, and I think that's, that's really, um, I think you summed that up very well. What, I don't want to paint any, any rosy portrait of it and say that, oh, the heavens opened and, and you know, it was, it was this feeling of bliss and, and I knew I was in the right. And, you know, no, it, wasn't, it, it was the opposite. It was this awful, just awful feeling of what I had been through. Um, of, of, uh, I, I texted my kids after it was over. I'd actually I'd let my ex-wife know that I was going to be there. And I said, don't tell the kids. Um, I don't want them to worry about me. And, um, and then I, I got through and I texted my, the group, the, the family chat. And I said, I'm, I'm back from Charlottesville and every, I'm fine. I didn't get hurt. And, um, <laughs> one of my kids wrote, wait, what? Right. <laughs> and I didn't, you know, and I had to, um, it took me, it took me a couple of weeks just to get over the kind of the, the trauma of the experience where I could really talk about, it. I had to do a lot of writing and, and stuff and reflecting for my job, uh, af- immediately after. And I think it's just awful stuff. It's, it's not, I didn't, I didn't, I, it was, it was too much for me, but yeah, I would just say that it was not, it was not something, um, where I just felt like, Oh I got it, you know. It's all good. It just, it just is another stop on a journey. And the cool thing, I guess, really that comes out of it is I picked up some real cool f- friends along the way while I was there, built some real, you know, bonds. Like I said, and I think that's sometimes that's all you get. Hmm. And I think that's good enough. And you, you had mentioned early on your friend asking the question, you know, what would Jesus say about that? And I wonder if, you know, I, I don't know how many times I've had in my life where I could maybe say, I just did a thing Jesus would have done. When you think back to that moment, is that kind of a moment in your life where you're like, I think I was doing it. I think Jesus would have been standing there next to me. No, no, I didn't. And and um, I knew Jesus was calling me to that, but um, but I didn't feel like this was something he did. He would have done. And, and I'm uh, but I I did say this is this is a, my Jonah moment. Um, that I did, I did say, you know, to myself, WWJD, what would Jonah do? Um, because Jonah is, you know, he's my, my, uh, my, my mascot, my, uh, my, my patron prophet. He's, you know, it's like, God says, go to Nineveh. He's like, Oh, cool. I'm going to get on this boat and go the other way. I'll see you later. And then God brings him back and spits him out on the shore. And he's all right, I'll go, I'll go tell him. And you can just, I can just picture Jonah walking up into Nineveh and saying, okay, I'm going to do what I have to do. Uh, you know, 40 days in the city will be overturned Bye. I did it. God fine. I'm out of here. And then, you know, they did repent. 
And, and then Jane is pouting about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's me. That's my, that's the extent of my prophetic experience. It's, it's, uh, I, yeah, it's, it's what would Jonah do <laughs> for me? And that's what I felt like. Yes. Who's Nineveh and where's Tarshish? Who's Nineveh? Yeah, who was Nineveh's the... Nineveh's just all the places I don't want to go. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a, right. it's a hundred places, and I could name them off. I didn't want to go... Um, I didn't want to go be a pastor. I didn't want to go to a church. I didn't want to go uh, to a... My first appointment as a pastor was in a little area called Piney Flats, Tennessee. Just picture that any way you just want. You'll small. probably be right. Right. <laughs> and I, and I, I didn't want to go and I went, you know, and, huh. and, uh, there's just a hundred places. I would even say in my personal life, you know, my divorce, my seeing my family fall apart, things like that, places I didn't want to go, but I went and I found, I found Jesus there, um, hmm. uh, in all of those places. And so, um, uh, Tarshish is, is, it's where, you know, it's where I'm comfortable. It's where, you know, it's, it's hanging out with the people that are, that are like me. Um, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's the fantasy life that I think I would love that, you know, there's all of us, it's said in the United Methodist Church that every good pastor has a drawer full of job applications, uh, in their desk because it's just, you know, we're just always trying to find a way out. And I've done my share of that. I've, I've done my share of trying to get out and, and, and be out of it. But, um, but I, um, uh, I keep, I keep coming back. I keep being drawn back and I had a perfectly good opportunity to leave (laughs) it all behind when I left the national council of churches. But you know what? I came back and I found a way to be in ministry to ministers and and to be a, a, a an assistant to clergy and to try to to use all this stuff that I've been through as a way of helping churches be more authentic and more faithful and more effective. So, yeah, why don't you tell us about that a little bit? The, yeah, what, what you're it's doing a, now? It's it's a it's a it's a project with the audacious title of an institute, and I I call it <laughs> the Lakelands Institute. And um, uh, what it 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 started as a uh, a pandemic project to try to build up some online resources for clergy to help them get uh, through the, um, uh, the 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 age of online worship, um, and it grew from there because it turns out there are a whole bunch of high level church executives that were that were uh, let go about the same time I was, and they were all looking for a way to to get back in, and so guess what? We banded together and and have uh, uh, been working to uh, to deal with some. I would call them the real pressing issues of the church these days. Um, and it's, uh, it's the racism question. It's, um, it's, mm. it's the online ministry question. It's, uh, it's about how, you know, the church is no longer bound by time and space. We don't have to do it at uh, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning anymore in a, in a specific building. We can be anywhere and everywhere at any time. And how are we going to connect with people um, when we have that ability? Um, it's about real estate because one of the guys I work with says that um, he's made a projection that 30% of all the churches in the United States are going to close in the next five years. Um, really? And what is that going to do to denominations uh, and, and structures for the institutional church when they don't currently have a plan for what to do with 
empty buildings and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, New Jersey is sitting, the United Methodist church in New Jersey is sitting on $1.5 billion worth of property. 30% of those churches are going to close in five years. That means $500 million worth of real estate is going to need to be dealt with. Well, guess what? You know, some of those places are in very, very hot real estate markets. So there's stuff you could do that would benefit the church rather than just letting them kind of fall apart. So it's things like that that we're trying to work on, um, mm. work with church agencies, work with uh, even individual churches. I've got a great contract right now where I'm just flat out doing communications for a church that I love, and I'm just eating it up. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, it's it's all stuff like that. And um, I, I just think, uh, I think the church is in the middle of a, an incredible reformation right now. I think, you know, who, Phyllis Tickle said that every 500 years, the, the church goes through some radical uh, reshaping and reformation, and, and we're, due, we're overdue. <laughs> and I think we're in the middle of one. Um, and um, yeah, I, think and so I really, I am, I am so excited to be, uh, to be in the middle of that conversation. It's so cool. But it's scary too, you know, because oh, yeah. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make a living doing that. So far, I, so good, though, you know. You know, we I, I've been hearing about healthcare workers who are getting burnt out and leaving their jobs at a time when we need them the most. And, um, you know, personally and anecdotally, I, I see the same thing happening in churches. Yep. Um, and you're someone who had that opportunity, you know, and probably even caused to kind of maybe be pushed away or, or have a chip on your shoulder or whatever. Um, so as, how has that prepared you for this moment, having conversations with with clergy and churches? Well, that's the cool thing. When I left, when I left, uh, parish ministry, it was, it was, um, it was because I really felt called to do something different and, and I couldn't, I couldn't keep doing the same thing uh, over again, so I had to launch out and find my way. And um, uh, and now you know, it's a it's an amazing thing because now I I've got credibility and people know that I've pastored churches. People know that I spent 19 years in the pulpit. People know that I um, that I care deeply about the experience of of being a pastor, and I know how hard it is. And mm. and um, and I I think that has prepared me to be a voice of, um, yeah, but let's, what if we did this? What if we tried, what if we thought about it in this different way? Um, for example, this church that I'm working with, uh, that I described, I, I, um, uh, I, I pitched the idea of doing a, a course, uh, for the church on the spirituality of photography, we already talked about really? some of that, okay? So I yeah. do a four a four uh, a four evening Zoom based course on on the spirituality of photography, and the pastor says, "Oh, that's great! Let's do it! Let's do it! But let's open it up to the to the whole town. Let's open it up to the whole town so anybody in this in the city can can be part of it." I'm like, "Dude, uh, I'm going to open it up to the whole world." I mean, you know, it's, it's why, why think about things geographically anymore? So it's not a, it's not a matter of capacity. It's just a matter of imagination. It's what we, what we see ourselves as being able to do. You know, I'm talking to you guys, you're in what, Colorado? You're both in Colorado. I'm in uh, Washington DC area. 
a um, few time zones between us, but hey, we're we're building a relationship here, and uh, and that's that's the possibility that exists today that didn't exist before, and 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 I I feel. I feel as though I've got a lot of experience in both of those worlds. I've got experience in the pulpit in a tiny little church with, you know, just a few people there um, and all the way up to working for a national organization and having a gigantic mailing list and all this kind of stuff. So, um, so it's, it, it just, again, I don't know. I don't know if I'll be able to make a living doing it particularly. I'm definitely not going to get rich doing it, but uh, it sure does feel like it's where I need to be right now. Yeah, I think it's great that you're doing that. I haven't come across, I'm, I'm sure there are other groups doing something similar, but I haven't come across anything before. Because uh, they're, especially, like you said, pandemics kind of kicked off a whole new, like, hurry up and figure this out. <laughs> and I like that you are going beyond that. Like, I see you have a, a course on anti-racism and Zoom's online presence for engagement. You know, it's, it's a lot of great, broad spectrum of, of stuff. Yeah. And they're churches. all, they're all things that are connected because we are in the middle of this racial reckoning right now. We, and, yeah. and churches need to be ready to face it. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most divided uh, hour in, in American life. Uh, it yeah. hasn't changed since he died. Um, uh, and, and that needs to be part of what we do. And it's not, it's not just, you know, we're going to put a black lives matter sign out in front of the church. That doesn't, I, you know, I guess it has its place in some communities, but it's really about learning how we can love our neighbors, how we can mm-hmm. love our neighbors as ourselves, because we're living in a world that's just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And our neighbors are closer and closer and closer. As the world's been changing and we, how we were consuming media was changing, how we were even, excuse the French, but how we were, we were consuming church or consuming religion was changing and then things got turned up quite a bit sped up it seems like we we've, we've made a decade worth of movement in in just a year yeah um there's a lot of downsides to that what is your imagination your vision for what the opportunities can be what what can the church be next year and in the next 10 years well first we we um when we got pushed online uh, by the pandemic, the 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 maybe not the technology that we're using today. It wasn't maybe not as mature ten years ago, but definitely we had some capacity for this. And 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 what I'd like to say is that that the pandemic just kind of took a lot of trends that were already in place in church life and just you know put them on hyperdrive. Yeah. And and so we emerged uh, from a. Um, from a from the pandemic, we came we came back to our in person worship services, and and uh, our churches were mostly in decline already, and now they're really in decline. Oddly, though, uh, a lot of churches are experiencing better financial situation than they've had. Um, but um, I I do struggle with this. I think I think a good a Christian must always have a theology of place. I think places do matter. Um, I think Jerusalem as a holy city is a real thing. It's not just a concept. There's really something holy about Jerusalem if you go there. And likewise, uh, my my church that I grew up in, you know, is a sacred place for me. Uh, my mother's buried there. Uh, I was ordained there. It's, it's, it, it will always hold this 
this sacred place in my life. And if we don't have that, we're, we're missing something. So I don't see, I don't see the church evolving past buildings and structures, Hmm. but I do know that in the last hundred years or 120 years, uh, churches have been located in different places based upon transportation uh, uh, modes. Uh, in the 1900s, you know, the churches were in the middle of every town where you could walk or you could ride your horse. Then it got in the 50s, they were being built out in the suburbs because you could drive out there um, and people were living right. in the suburbs, you know, and, and, and the church kind of parish model uh, adjusted to, you know, the distance people could drive to get to church. Now, you know, if we don't, if we don't have a, a robust online presence, then um, every other every other um, every other institution that does is going to surpass us, yeah. and the imagination of our kids is going to go there instead of to the church. And so, I think I think it behooves us to really explore this this space, and I think. I think there are just amazing possibilities, amazing possibilities that are part of it. Yeah, it, it it's it's fascinating. The, I mean, I know that there was a pandemic about a hundred years ago. Yep. But if I have to be living through a pandemic in my lifetime, I'm glad that I'm living through a pandemic in a time when we can have conversations like this, like seeing you in DC, and like when we were starting to look around for churches in town, we were able to visit sort of tons of churches without getting outside at all without doing that scary scary thing of walking through the doors and hoping you're not recognized as a yeah, visitor yeah. yeah i i had been visiting a a place that was pretty you know most people were online and uh last sunday i i drove up and there were maybe five times five times the amount of cars in the parking lot and i just drove past the church and went to a restaurant cuz i was mm. i was like that same feeling of you know dread and fear of people, yeah. That it's actually important that that I get over that to get to the people. So it's it's almost like the online presence is both a uh, something that can bring people in and coax people in, but also for me, it, I think I've got to avoid the the crutch or the um, the easier the easier path. I did. I did have a fascinating conversation with a guy who's a pastor of a church in Melbourne, Australia. That they mm-hmm. um, they elected. It's a very liturgical church. It's it's one where they've structured uh, the service to be you know very much involved you know involving everybody in the service. And they actually uh, elected as a church that even when they could come back together, they were going to not do that because they found that their worship service worked better on zoom than it did in person. Huh. Hmm. And, and I, uh, that has just blown my mind. Um, really? and, uh, and, and that's something I think we have the freedom now to explore. Um, and it doesn't all have to be worship. It, you know, there's a lot of things churches can do, uh, on, on during days of the week that are not, you know, they're not the kind of, you know, yeah. Uh, the the whole thing of worship itself, but there's just a lot of ways we can engage people in Christian education, Christian conversations, et cetera, um, that we have the opportunity to do now. Um, and we're freed from the, from the real estate and we're freed from the scary experience of walking in the building. We can, you know, join in on a zoom call and keep our camera turned off until we're ready to turn it on. It's really, 
and this is just the way things are working in the rest of the world. So I think we it's it's an opportunity for us. Yeah, and then bring it back to what you were talking about earlier. I think it's an opportunity to start focusing on instead of just showing up at a place on a Sunday or learning stuff about God to start working on getting people out out of their houses and doing things for other people and doing things like Christ would do them, you know? Yep. Yep. I think that's a great, it's a great opportunity. And it's really cool to work with smart people and to, to talk to smart people all over the world all the time who are, who are figuring this stuff out. I don't know the first thing about what to do. I don't have a prescription for it, but man, it's fun to, to be in the middle of that conversation, to, to hear what people are doing, what they're trying, what they're experimenting with and what they're finding works and what doesn't. It's just such a cool place to be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us, tell us how to get in touch with you or how to find your stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's easy. It's uh lakelandsinstitute.com. And, uh, okay. Yeah, and I try to make uh, everything there uh, as easily accessible as possible. So uh, sign up for the newsletters, the, the the emails, and don't send them out too often. So don't worry, I'm not going to fill up your uh, your your email box. I uh, I do a podcast, and and I've got a, a guy uh, a guy named Steve Martin that was a guest recently, and I still got to put that <laughs> together and, and edit that thing and. Uh, uh, and get it out there. But I've, uh, I've taken a little time off from the podcast, uh, lately, but that's got to fire up again soon. And, uh, what's the name of your podcast? Uh, it's called mainline. Okay. So, you know, again, my heart is, has always been with the mainline church for better, for worse. It's where it is. And, uh, so we're there to talk about all things, you know, dealing that the mainline churches are dealing with right now. So, um, so that's there and, um, but definitely just my website, lakelandsinstitute.com, uh, is a great place to connect. You have any good stories about, uh, being confused with the comedian and banjo player, Steve Martin? <laughs> I don't know, Steve, what do you think? Have you, do, do, do we, do we want to go down this road? Well, um, I've got a lot of stories. I don't know how many good stories I have. <laughs> my favorite one was when I was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in uh, New York one day, and people were. In, I was sitting down in in, uh, in the cafeteria or the little dining area, and 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 people at the next table were saying, "Hey, we heard Steve Martin's in the building." And I thought, <laughs> uh, "I'm I'm a bit of a of a of a selfie collector." Um, and um, I thought, oh my gosh, that this what a great how great would it be if I could get a selfie with with <laughs> Steve Martin and you know and and uh, that would be like the most epic. And then we have to have the conversation about who's the real Steve Martin. Do you ever get that? Are you the real oh, Steve yeah. Martin? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I'm the real Steve Martin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm the real Steve Martin. You're yeah, the real was, Steve Martin. Uh, for one of our anniversaries. Christy and I went down to Denver and uh, booked, uh, res- reserved a really nice uh, restaurant, uh, spotted a really nice restaurant. And uh, we got there and we're like, reservation for Steve Martin. And the, and the look on the lady's face, it just fell. She's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, well, happy to see you too. <laughs> Not the guy we were hoping for. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's a good story. That's yeah, a good that's one. really good. Makes you feel yeah. welcome. But I think the best story that I've had is, is building a friendship with a new with, with a guy named Stephen D. Martin, uh, uh, and it's not me. I think that's been uh, that's been a real joy here lately. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on the on the podcast, man, and uh, looking forward to getting to know you better. May it happen. May it happen. 
Nate, great to meet you and get a chance to chat. Yeah, nice to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. See you guys later. All these messages I thought you wanted to hear But it only takes a whisper Hey, thanks for listening to Following the Fire. If you'd like to see show notes for this episode, which includes links to everything we mentioned as well as all the scriptures, head on over to followingthefire.com and just click on this episode. There's also contact information on the website. Let us know what you think about the show and if you have any suggestions for future topics. Also, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you could. It really helps other folks find the show. And as always, thanks to the fabulous Daniel Wheat for the theme song and the music for the episode. You can find more of his stuff on Apple Music and Spotify. See you later. 